0: Um, so tonight we're going to be going through uh, 6, 1 through seven 15. Um, we're going to stop short of that. Most Bibles continue that section. Um, and we're going to stop short because I think it makes more sense for us. And so just that's kind of why we're doing that. So then next week we'll go seven sixteen 16 um, through the end of 8, the rest of the Gideon story. Um, I'm supposed to send greetings to you from Heartland Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri, or Kansas. My friend is teaching tonight on Nehemiah chapter 3. We had some rousing discussions about both books. I mean, what do pastors do when they're together? They talk about the Bible. And a lot of other stuff. (laughs) So... Let's uh, open with a word of prayer and then we'll dive into (laughs) a surprising, familiar scenario. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for today. We just come to you tonight anticipating uh, our time together and looking forward to not only your word, but also the interactions that we will enjoy with each other. And we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us, that you'd be among us, that you'd be working in us. And we ask with great expectation, Father, that you would be communicating to us what it is that you desire for us to, to hear and to respond to tonight uh, from this passage and from our discussions. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we are, again, 6-1, six, 6-1, uh, six, one, six, one, and we're going to start with a very familiar phrase. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> so we see that continuing to come back. You know, this really becomes the idea of understanding there doesn't seem to be any repentance going on. There just seems to be this um, partial reset of this 40-year period. So the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian, or the Midianites, for seven Years and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves and the strongholds. That really sounded weird as I read it. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them, they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza. And leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, they would come like locusts in number, both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So again, We get this uh, reset that the Israelites are doing uh, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. One of the things that we're going to ask ourselves is, is the narrator or is the writer speaking in hyperbole? Because some of these descriptions, you're like, really? I mean, really is it that bad? (laughs) I mean, like... Literally, they can't plant anything because it immediately gets consumed. They've moved from their houses into the caves. Um, These Midianites are just oppressing them to the nth degree. And part of me thinks uh, we have this particular ability to remember things that are bad as like extra, extra bad. You're like, oh, my word, it was the worst. And you're like, really, was it the worst? Or did you just not like what was happening? Part of it, too, is um, it was so bad. Remember, how bad was it, right? (laughs) Last time, it took them 20 years to cry out to God. This time, it only took them seven years to cry out to God. Now, the Midianites have an interesting relationship with the nation of Israel. If you remember back to Exodus, Moses actually takes refuge with the Midianites. And now, my, how the tables have turned, and they are oppressing uh, the people. But it is so bad that they're living in caves and strongholds. Literally, they cannot produce any sort of crop because it's immediately eaten They have no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. Well, the problem with that, spoiler alert, is Gideon has two oxen. So maybe they just didn't have that much. Seems to be a little bit of an over-exaggeration. But anyways, they're in this really bad spot, so they cry out to God for help. Now, the cycle has been... right. Previously, the people do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They cry out to God for help, and God does what? He provides them with a judge. Slight change here. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites. The Lord sent <clears throat> a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell. But you have not obeyed my voice. Now, I have to make a full confession here. As I was reading this and preparing And as I was going through the flow of this, I missed this. And where's Michael? Hello. Someone whose name is Michael, who isn't currently here, he brought to my attention that I was actually, and he was supported by some other folks, that I was actually wrong. I I was actually reading into this that, that this prophet that is being unnamed here was it was this implication that it was Gideon, and upon further reflection, upon further review from the booth, there has been a reversal. The prophet is not Gideon, so don't get yourself confused. The prophet is actually an unnamed person. Now, why is the narrator not giving us the name of the person? Because, again, we've had all of these uh, interesting moments where we get specific names of people, we get these great detail, and then in this instance, We don't get the name of this person. And again, part of what a prophet does is they uh, foretell, meaning what is going to happen in the future, and they foretell, they look at what has happened in the past and tell the reason why they are in their place. Man, you missed it. I was opening a vein, telling about how brilliant you are and how you self-corrected me and showed me my error of my ways, and I'm like... And he's not even here. So this prophet is looking back at what the Israelites have done and saying, this is why you are where you are. Remember back to all of these things that God had instructed you about moving into the land and how you're supposed to behave and how you're supposed to live and talking about Deuteronomy and all of these commands. And if you follow me and if you obey me, then I will bless you. But if you don't follow me and disobey my covenant, then I'm going to punish you. So it's not, there should be no surprise why the Israelites are in the position they're in. It's like, I told you, if you do this, you're going to get this. Why are you doing this to me? (laughs) Says every kid ever. Well, if you wouldn't have disobeyed, you wouldn't be in the position that you are in. And notice this component of remembering, as we've reflected on, isn't happening. And so part of what isn't happening is the, the Israelites are not reminding themselves of all the things that God has done. And so we're getting this ear, hear, uh, listen language that has been a theme throughout. And, and we remember back that that is coming out of the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So part of hearing is listening, and part of listening is listening. Well, in fact, all of listening is being obedient to what we're listening to. And so this prophet is saying, this is why you are where you are. Now, part of this gets communicated in, you know, in the past we've had the Israelites do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a deliverer. Now we're seeing a slight break. God is a gracious God, and he also is willing to allow them to suffer, So he's letting them sit in this uncomfortable state for a very important reason. When you're living in a cave, it's not real comfortable. (laughs) You're like, when did you live in a cave? I haven't. But I've been in a cave, and they're wet, and they're dank, and they're dark, and they're kind of stinky and disgusting. So imagine living in one I wouldn't want to. And so God is letting them kind of sit in this place. How long did they sit there? We don't know. What we get is verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah. Just kidding. It's Ophrah. But I got your attention. You get a tree, and you get a tree, and you get a tree, and you get a tree, Right? which belonged to Joash, the Abiazrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us? Saying, Did not the Lord... "'Bring us up from Egypt, but now the Lord has forsaken us "'and given us into the hand of Midian.' "'And the Lord turned to him and said, "'Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. "'Do not I send you.' "'And he said to him, "'Please, Lord,' "'this is Gideon speaking to the angel, "'how can I save Israel? "'Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, "'and I am the least in my father's house.' And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So we get this call of Gideon, and the angel of the Lord appears, and it's interesting that we get this reference uh, to this terebinth, this tree at Ophrah. Remember, Deborah is sitting under this tree, the tree of Deborah. So we see God using this theme of a tree and the importance of a tree as this um, narrative theme that that continues to move through the text. The angel of the Lord Appears to Gideon and he addresses him as what? He says, The Lord is with you, verse 12, O mighty man of valor. Now, we're going to have a bit of a hard time with that phrasing, except when we dig a little bit deeper. Gideon has a hard time with that uh, phrasing. Because he says, What? He's like, I'm nothing, my father's house, and and I'm the least in my father's house, I'm the weakest in Manasseh, my father's house is the weakest in Manasseh, and we're going to be like, "Mm, but is he really? We're going to get to that in a little bit. But what is it that Gideon says? Why has all of this happened to us? Again, he is echoing what the Israelites are saying in that why, if God is with us, then why are all of these bad things happening to us? It becomes this thing that maybe we've said to ourselves. If God is so great and God loves me so much, why is this bad stuff happening in my life? And it becomes this great question around the problem of evil, and and certainly within this uh, setting, we're still living in this Deuteronomic theology do good, get good, do bad, get bad, but they want to just reject that. And and Gideon is saying, if God loves us, why is it, at the end of 13, why is it that God has forsaken us? It's as if he is having amnesia about the fact (laughs) that they've broken the covenant. And Gideon is basically trying to argue with the angel of the Lord and saying, God should always bless us no matter what happens, no matter how we obey him, no matter how we honor him. God should always bless us because God is who he is and he's supposed to love us no matter what. We see this interesting tension around how this covenant relationship works with God's people and with God. And Gideon is blaming God for what is happening to them when we know that's not the case you know we we say these we say these grandiose stories when i do something stupid that's not god's fault you know it's like if i go out and i do something really stupid like let's say i were to um, let's say i were to text and drive and i were to get into an accident I wouldn't say, Lord, why have you forsaken me? And you're like, because you're an idiot. (laughs) Like, how dumb? No, God is punishing them because they've done stupid things. It's not just because he is this vengeful God, but the perspective is in this very interesting position of God is. Left them, and in fact, God is actually with them. And so it is the exact opposite of what is happening. So notice some of the very fine uh, details that goes on in this conversation. Verse 14, he says, "Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you." How can I save Israel? And we cannot ever forget who is the main character in this whole entire story. It's Yahweh. Yes, it's God. But Gideon is making it very, this becomes this very personal uh, thing. Verse 16, and the Lord said to him, but I, God, will be with you, Gideon, And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So is it Gideon that's doing this? Is it God that's doing it? Is it the people that are doing it? We're starting to kind of parse through what exactly is going on. And Gideon is like, okay, I'm not sure you are who you think, who you say you are. But if you are who you say you are, thank you, Denny Green, Then just hang out here for a second, and I'll be right back. I'm just going to run into my house and butcher a goat and make some bread. It'll take me just a few minutes. You go to some people's house, and you're like, okay, why do we need all of this food? Like, There's just a couple of us. Well, no, I thought we could have, you know, there's this guy in front of me. Again, I was in Kansas City. And this guy in front of me, we're at Joe's uh, barbecue place. And the guy who's with him orders by himself. He's like, I'll take uh, a brisket sandwich and some fries and a beverage. And he walks down. The next guy steps up and he's like, I'll take a brisket sandwich. Um, I'll take two pounds of pulled pork. Uh, I'll take six sausage." I'm like, dude, I mean, you're not a small person. But that is a heck of a lot of food. You know you've ordered too much food when the guy asks if you want extra sauce and he gives you a whole bottle. (laughs) You're like, okay, uh, three forks, please. Three forks, okay. (laughs) Anyways, Gideon makes all of this food for the angel of the Lord. He's like, if you're really who you say you are, then I'm going to go over the top. So he makes all this stuff. He puts, the basket in, in, uh, he puts the meat in a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them to him under the terebinth and pre- presented them to him, to them and presented them, meaning the things. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour out the broth over them. Interesting technique. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. You don't say. I make a man a meal. He touches a rock. Poof. Food's gone. He's gone. Oh, I guess that was God hanging out with me. As if it would have been somebody else. Alas! And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. (laughs) That's what I'd be thinking. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiazrites. We have some deeper things going on here with some of the language that is happening for example the angel of the Lord disappears and and we see that happening and Gideon's uh, perception of what happened is that he is seeing God face to face when has this happened previously in the Old Testament Moses has this encounter with God to see God face to face has this, like, mind-boggling experience. And, and so we, we really see how Gideon views the angel of the Lord as God himself. So we have this prophet who's the mouthpiece of God. Then we have the angel of the Lord who is the representative of God in a more official or hierarchical capacity than the prophet is that was earlier. And Gideon has this monumental experience. And then in verse 23, But the Lord said to him, What's our first question? I thought the guy left. The angel of the Lord disappears, and now the the Lord, Yahweh, is speaking to Gideon. And it brings up this thing that we're going to continue to talk about around how does God choose to communicate with us? Because God is communicating to Gideon through the angel of the Lord, and then there seems to be this direct example of God speaking audibly to Gideon and telling him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. And God and Gideon have this relationship where God continues to reassure Gideon in the midst of these crazy circumstances that I am with you. And most of us would say, well, if, if God did that, then, then I would never have any problem doing anything he ever asked me to do. I would just obey You know, it's the great, the great hymn. Lee, maybe we can make an adjustment to this Sunday. Trust and obey, for there's no other way. I mean, we had songs last week, and we could sing it right now. I'm sure many of us could just, I mean, I don't have a pitch pipe to get us going, so I guess we'll probably wait on that for later. I mean, think about the theology of that hymnal, or of that hymn. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. We're going to challenge that a little bit tonight. So God is communicating to Gideon. And again, one of the things that, that why it's so important for us to be in community as we read the text and as we discuss who God is and how God relates to us is because each one of us is a different person. And each one of us hears things slightly differently or understands things slightly differently. So if we get ten of us together and God chooses to communicate in ten different ways to the ten of us, is it that God doesn't know what he's doing? Is it that it's ten different gods that's communicating to us in individual fashions? Or is it a prism of God's communicative act? Like, oh, God, we're getting into some deep words. Just hang with me. That when we see it together, we see the fullness of who God is, and if we don't work together in sharing how God is communicating to us, we see God in a very one-dimensional fashion. And so... Is the way that God is communicating to Gideon, is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? What's descriptive? It's showing this is how God was communicating to Gideon at the time that Gideon was alive. Is it prescriptive? Maybe. The challenge is when we make it normative, meaning this is the way that God communicates all the time, and then it doesn't happen, then we feel like we're out of the loop. Because I'm not sure about you, but I haven't ever had an angel of the Lord show up, request a young goat and some unleavened bread, do some pyrotechnics, and disappear. (laughs) Anyone? Would anyone actually admit it? And if you did admit it, would anyone believe you? (laughs) So Gideon has this moment with God where God communicates to him. And what is it that he's communicating to him? He's communicating this concept of peace. Now, when we think about peace, we think about, like, peace, man. Just, like, let it ride, good vibes, right? When Gideon is thinking about peace, when God is communicating peace to Gideon, it is this concept, this Hebrew concept of shalom, which is wholeness. It's not just lack of war, it's wholeness. It's completeness, it's reconciliation. And so God is telling Gideon that reconciliation between the Israelites and me is on its way. And it's going to happen through you. So Gideon builds this altar and it's going to be this place of peace. And then we get this little editor's note, and it still stands to this day, which has a big impact. Remember, Larry from Luz was still standing to this day, same language happening here, meaning there are some, still some good things happening. That night, the Lord says to him, again, this communicative act, God speaking to Gideon, he says, take your father's bull, and the second bull, seven years old, like, I thought all the livestock was gone, and I thought that you actually were from a a really poor family, um, but you've got some livestock, and you also have some significant land and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down so Gideon took 10 men as his servants and did as the Lord told him had told him But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So we can't miss this. And and Patty pointed this out today, and I was like, oh, my word. Gideon's father, the, the household that Gideon grows up in, is not a household that fears God. Gideon... Is an Israelite by birth, but he isn't following after Yahweh. So he grows up with a, an altar or two, depending on how we look at the Asherah pole, in his backyard. I mean, just imagine that. We, we give Gideon such a hard time, and yet, as a little kid, he's growing up and they're worshiping Baal literally in his backyard. And all he knows is Baal worship. And the worship of, of the Asherah pole, And we know that the Israelites are not doing what God has commanded them to do. So, oftentimes, when we come to the t- story of Gideon, w- we think that he's already ten steps ahead in his obedience to God. And so we really start to question like who he is and how he relates to God. And the narrator or the writer wants us to know that Gideon comes from a household where they literally have the idol and the altar to Baal in their backyard. (laughs) Like We can't miss that. Gideon would have known how this whole thing worked with Baal from the very beginning, and he would have heard stories about who Baal is and how all these things work. And so the request from God to go into his father's house to go into literally his own backyard and to destroy the main altar for the townspeople. This isn't like um, just go do a little bit of renovating in the landscape. It'll be fine. (laughs) No, we're going to throw down right here, right now, holy war is going to happen in Gideon's father's backyard. And again, this isn't like, all right, What I want you to do, covert operation, uh, slide in there and be real quiet and get rid of everything real quiet-like. You you notice this, right? He's got two seven-year-old bulls. (laughs) Like, I don't know about you, but I haven't wrangled many bulls. And by many, I mean any bulls. But I'm pretty sure seven-year-old bulls, not really animals I want to mess with. We're just going to go march them into the backyard as if it's not going to cause a ruckus? And we're going to tear down this altar? Like this was a big operation, and Gideon gets it done. And we're like, well, yeah, but he did it at night. (laughs) Okay. He did do it at night. And so there's this, as one of the commentators <laughs> says, there's a distinction between healthy realism and fear. <laughs> so does he do it at night because he's, a, he's fearful of what's going to happen? Maybe. Or is it that he's like, if I do it during the broad daylight, I'm never going to get it done, and I need to get it done, and so we're going to do this at night. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Because the writer says he was afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, which he probably was. Which he probably was. So what was driving his decision to do it at night? When the men of town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down and the Asherah beside it was cut down and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. I mean, have you ever had your house teepeed? Like, that pales in comparison to this, okay? You wake up, and there's a dead bull in the backyard, and, and you've, got, you've got some problems. And they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the, son, then the men of the town said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself. That language sound familiar? Elijah? Because his altar has been broken down. Therefore on that day Gideon was called Jerubbabel, or Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. So Gideon is held up in his father's house and the townsmen come and they want to deal with Gideon. Don't forget this moment. Townsmen come to a father's house, want to deal with his child. Gideon's father says, uh, No if Baal is so great, then why doesn't Baal do Baal's thing? And he's had this almost overnight conversion experience where he's like, oh, wow, the faith of my son has created this moment in my life where I no longer actually believe that Baal has the power to do what Baal does. And so there's some speculation around, did he do it just for the to fit in with the community? Was it a financial reason why he was willing to do this if he didn't actually believe it? I'm more on the side that he saw what his son did and was like, oh, wow, okay, here we go. But notice he gets this new name, and there's, some again, some speculation on whether or not the new name is something that is given to him by the townspeople as this derogatory name, or it fits within this larger scope of the Old Testament narrative where we see people's names uh, being changed after a significant event. Think uh, Abram, Abraham, there's other instances. Mephibosheth gets a new name. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all those names are changed throughout the text. This is something that happens. Now, all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together And they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet, and the uh, Abiasrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. Remember last week we talked about this, uh, these people weren't responding, and so now these people are responding, and Gideon is calling them out. But we cannot miss verse thirty-four. The spirit of the Lord is on Gideon like a cloak. This is again this theme that we see continuing to take place throughout the book of Judges, really throughout the book of the Old Testament, or throughout the Old Testament. And when we start to wonder where is the Holy Spirit pre, uh, well, you could say pre Acts two, you could say pre baptism of Jesus, it's the, the Holy Spirit is around. It's, it's always been around, it will always be around, and it's here doing this miraculous thing on Gideon. Then Gideon says to God, okay, Gideon, speaking now to God in this communication, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground... Uh, Then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Ah, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more, please. Let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. So we see, again, God and Gideon are having this conversation, and this becomes a very interesting point of how we interpret the text, and how we can help one another see what's happening within the text. And it's fascinating how how we can sit in places like we are today, and we can speculate on the uh, quality of Gideon's faithfulness to God and critique his decisions. <laughs> right? We're like, oh, Gideon, terrible leader. <laughs> Is he? Well, he doubted God. Did he? Part of the the claim that. Gideon is doubting God is this belief that doubt is a bad thing when it comes to our relationship with God. Because how is it that God responds to Gideon throughout all of this? Does God smite Gideon? Does God rebuke Gideon? Does God tell Gideon, "Oh ye of little faith, how in the world could you ever ask me to do something so we interpret what Gideon is doing from our human perspective, but we don't ever allow what God is doing, and how God is relating to Gideon, to help us understand who God is and how Gideon functions. And we see all of these different leaders and how they're functioning and, and living their life with God. And yes, Gideon is not Deborah. Alert the media, they're two different people from two different generations, two different time frames more or less, but that doesn't mean that what Gideon is doing is bad and what Deborah was doing was good. Why can't they both be healthy, positive responses to how we relate to God? And so we need to be very careful, and I'm saying this as much to myself as I'm saying it to the world wide web, because... When I read this, I'm like, this guy is a joke. Like, God has done all of these things for him. He, you know, the angel of the Lord visits him. There's all of these amazing miracles happening. And, and he can't even follow through. He's got to be like, okay, well, okay, one more thing. One more thing. One more thing. One more thing. Actually, two more things. Yes. Lunch people? Did I not say? I said, This is when Russ says, trust but verify. So thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that was just like, yep, trust but verify. (laughs) Beautiful. So notice that, that Gideon isn't necessarily saying that he doesn't trust that God will do what God is going to do. Maybe it's the case that Gideon is wanting to have clarity in who is speaking to him and who is communicating the instructions in his life. Gideon wants to know for certain that God is the one that's saying this, and he knows that God will be patient with him, and will be gracious to him, and will continue to communicate with him every step of the way, and through a variety of circumstances. Because the first one, it's like, okay, the ground could be dry because there was low atmospheric pressure, and there was, you know, the humidity was right because uh, the fleece had come in from from the cave. It's like, okay, whatever. The second one, no, that's really the miracle. Okay. The point is that God is is willing to communicate with Gideon and reassure him that he in fact is the one that is communicating this call on his life. And we are the ones that say, "Well, Gideon, he was he was bad." At this point God is not saying anything negative about Gideon. We we again have the stigmatism around the even the term questioning God. It's like, "Well, Okay. Then uh, Jerubbaal or jerubbabel that sounds a lot better, has a lot more uh, ring to it. That is Gideon. Thanks for reminding us. And all the people who were with him rose early in a camp beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Mora in the valley, which is interesting note. that, that Actually, right now, the warlords or the war, war spectators, war uh, speculators would say, The Israelites have already won because uh, the Midianites are in the valley and they have the high ground, but that's neither here nor there. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me. Again, God is the number one character. Saying, My own hands have saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. I mean, if you guys don't want to fight, you know, go home, Go ahead. Go, go home. And so, and so they do. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Notice God is the one who's doing the testing. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you this one shall not go with you shall not go so he brought the people down to the river to the water and the lord said to gideon everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps you shall set by himself likewise everyone who kneels down to drink and the number of those who lapped putting their hands to their mouths was 3 300 men but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water and the lord said to gideon With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man, to his tent, but retained the three hundred men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, what we miss here in this language of what's going on at the water's edge. Is the Hebrew here is the same for sifting, so he's sifting out the people uh, to get down to what he really, what God really wants. I mean, how brilliant is that? We start this story with Gideon, and he's in the wine press, he's fearful, he's hiding, he's sifting and and, and he's milling the grain in this place of fear and protection. And here he's in this place of Uh, power and position, no fear, and, and God is the one who's sifting out who he wants to fight versus who he doesn't want to fight. Now again, we start to speculate and we say, well, he must have selected the 300 best warriors. The only problem with that is that God wants to prove that it is God who's winning this battle and not the Israelites. And so, if God chooses the three hundred best men, we could even say, "Well, yeah, they won because He had the three hundred best." I actually think He probably had the three hundred worst, because that makes it more glaring of a victory on the on behalf of God. Why would He use all of these tactics and then choose the best at the end? We don't know. So, it's interesting to. To conversate around. All right, we got to finish this. Uh, That same night, the Lord said to him, okay, again, God communicating to Gideon, arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Woohoo, victory. But if you are afraid to go down and go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, notice the accommodation that God makes for Gideon. We see this valley is full, like full, full, full of all these mighty warriors. And Gideon and 300 folks are are camped out. And God says, if you're afraid, you want to bet he's afraid? I I would probably be terrified. God makes this accommodation. You remember last year when Derek went through this whole thing about how God accommodates us through language and all these things. God is making this accommodation for Gideon. And he says, if you are afraid, let me reassure you one more time. And you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. I mean, imagine just that visual of looking down into this valley and all you can see is camels and tents and warriors. Yeah, and he was probably afraid. And the Midianites and the Amalekites, uh, sorry, verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, I know you want to break into song. We're not doing musicals tonight. And behold, a cake of barley and barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so the tent lay flat. The, the old bread-rolling-downhill trick. It's like have you ever been to Lambert's in Springfield where they throw the dinner rolls, It's like that, but way worse. And his comrade answered him, this is no other than the sword of Gideon. Like, how does the Amalekite, like, oh yeah, I know what that dream means. It's that Gideon character. Bread, sword. Okay. This is no other than the sword of Gideon. Gideon the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So, now we want to be, God is using, okay, just bear with me here because it's in the text. God is using a dream to communicate to Gideon what's going to happen. This is descriptive. I'm acknowledging that. We want to make it prescriptive because I have some weird dreams. <laughs> for some reason they're often about I need to preach and somehow I can't get here and then I get fired, but that's that's a different conversation for a different time. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretations, he worshiped and he returned to the camp of Israel and said, "Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. I mean, think about all of this, the patience that God has for Gideon and and he meets him at every turn and he says, you are afraid, here's another sign. You're worried, yes, I can accommodate that. And so God is, is working through and with Gideon to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. And, and I, I certainly have to repent of how I have besmirched the name of Gideon as this weak man who doesn't have confidence in God and how dare he make... And, and it's through this process of communal reading where we get a different look and we say, maybe that's not actually accurate. It's that God is showing us through this story who God is and the patience that God has to love and care for his people through whatever they need and communicate to them in whatever way that he, they need. That person needs that communication. All right, we're over a little bit. I know it's going to cut into your discussion time. I apologize. Uh, go to your groups. For some reason you're not in a group, let me know.